Chapter Thirteen of the Memoirs of Barry Lyndon, Esquire, by William Makepeace Thackeray. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Thirteen. I continue my career as a man of fashion. I find I have already filled up many scores of pages, and yet a vast deal of the most interesting portion of my history remains to be told, viz that which describes my sojourn in the kingdoms of england and ireland and the great part i played there moving among the most illustrious of the land myself not the least distinguished of the brilliant circle in order to give due justice to this portion of my memoirs then which is more important than my foreign adventures can be though i could fill volumes with interesting descriptions of the latter I shall cut short the account of my travels in Europe and of my success at the Continental Courts in order to speak of what befell me at home. Suffice it to say that there is not a capital in Europe except the beggarly one of Berlin, where the young Chevalier de Balibéry was not known and admired, and where he has not made the brave, the high-born, and the beautiful talk of him. I won eighty thousand roubles from Potemkin at the Winter Palace at Petersburg, which the scoundrelly favorite never paid me. I had the honor of seeing His Royal Highness the Chevalier Charles Edward as drunk as any porter at Rome. My uncle played several matches at billiards against the celebrated Lord C. at Spa, and I promise you did not come off a loser. In fact, by a neat stratagem of ours, we raised the laugh against his lordship and something a great deal more substantial. My lord did not know that the Chevalier Barry had a useless eye, and when, one day, my uncle playfully bet him odds at billiards that he would play him with a patch over one eye, the noble lord, thinking to bite us, he was one of the most desperate gamblers that ever lived, accepted the bet, and we won a very considerable amount of him nor need i mention my successes among the fairer portion of the creation one of the most accomplished the tallest the most athletic and the handsomest gentleman of europe as i was then a young fellow of my figure could not fail of having advantages which a person of my spirit knew very well how to use but upon these subjects i am dumb charming shuvalov black-eyed zatarska dark Valdez, tender Helgenheim, brilliant Langeac, ye gentle hearts that knew how to beat in old times for the warm young Irish gentleman, where are you now? Though my hair has grown gray now, and my sight dim, and my heart cold with years, and ennui, and disappointment, and the treachery of friends, yet i have but to lean back in my armchair and think and those sweet figures come rising up before me out of the past with their smiles and their kindnesses and their bright tender eyes there are no women like them now no manners like theirs look you at a bevy of women at the princes stitched up in tight white satin sacks with their waists under their arms and compare them to the graceful figures of the old time. Why, when I danced with Coralie de Langeac at the fete on the birth of the first Dauphin at Versailles, 
her hoop was eighteen feet in circumference and the heels of her lovely little mules were three inches from the ground the lace of my jabot was worth a thousand crowns and the buttons of my amaranth velvet coat cost eighty thousand livres look at the difference now the gentlemen are dressed like boxers quakers or hackney coachmen and the ladies are not dressed at all there's no elegance no refinement none of the chivalry of the old world of which i form a portion think of the fashion of london being led by a b r m m l footnote this manuscript must have been written at the time when mr brummel was the leader of the london fashion End footnote. a nobody's son a low creature who can no more dance a minuet than i can talk cherokee who cannot even crack a bottle like a gentleman who never showed himself to be a man of the sword in his hand as we used to approve ourselves in the good old times before that vulgar corsican upset the gentry of the world oh to see the valdez once again as on that day i met her first driving in state with her eight mules and her retinue of gentlemen by the side of yellow manzanares oh for another drive with hagenheim in the gilded sledge over the saxon snow false as shuvalov was twas better to be jilted by her than to be adored by any other woman i can't think of any one of them without tenderness i have ringlets of all their hair in my poor little museum of recollections do you keep mine you dear souls that survive the turmoils and troubles of near half a hundred years how changed its color is now since the day Satarska wore it round her neck after my duel with count bernaski at warsaw i never kept any beggarly books of accounts in those days i had no debts i paid royally for everything i took and i took everything i wanted my income must have been very large my entertainments and equipages were those of a gentleman of the highest distinction nor let any scoundrel presume to sneer because i carried off and married my lady linden as you shall presently hear and call me an adventurer or say i was penniless or the match unequal penniless i had the wealth of europe at my command adventurer so is a meritorious lawyer or a gallant soldier so is every man who makes his own fortune an adventurer my profession was play in which i was then unrivalled no man could play with me through europe on the square and my income was just as certain during health and the exercise of my profession as that of a man who draws on his three per cents or any fat squire whose acres bring him revenue harvest is not more certain than the effect of skill is a crop is a chance as much as a game of cards greatly played by a fine player there may be a drought or a frost or a hailstorm and your stake is lost but one man is just as much an adventurer as another in evoking the recollection of these kind and fair creatures i have nothing but pleasure 
I would I could say as much of the memory of another lady, who will henceforth play a considerable part in the drama of my life. I mean the Countess of Linden, whose fatal acquaintance I made at Spa, very soon after the events described in the last chapter had caused me to quit Germany. Honoria, Countess of Linden, Viscountess Bullingdon in England, Baroness Castle Linden of the Kingdom of Ireland, was so well known to the great world in her day that I have little need to enter into her family history, which is to be had in any peerage that the reader may lay his hand on. She was, as I need not say, a countess, a viscountess, and baroness in her own right. Her estates in Devon and Cornwall were among the most extensive in those parts, her Irish possessions not less magnificent and they have been alluded to in a very early part of these memoirs, as lying near to my own paternal property in the kingdom of Ireland. Indeed, unjust confiscations in the time of Elizabeth and her father went to diminish my acres, while they added to the already vast possessions of the Linden family. The countess, when I first saw her at the assembly at Spa, was the wife of her cousin, the right honourable Sir Charles Reginald Linden, knight of the bath and minister to george the second and george the third at several of the smaller courts of europe sir charles linden was celebrated as a wit and bon vivant and could write love verses against hanbury williams and make jokes with george selwyn he was a man of virtue like harry walpole with whom and mr gray he had made a part of the grand tour and was cited in a word as one of the most elegant and accomplished men of his time. I made this gentleman's acquaintance as usual at the play-table, of which he was a constant frequenter. Indeed, one could not but admire the spirit and gallantry with which he pursued his favourite pastime, for, though worn out by gout and a myriad of diseases, a cripple wheeled about in a chair and, suffering pains of agony, Yet you would see him every morning and every evening at his post behind the delightful green cloth. And if, as it would often happen, his own hands were too feeble or inflamed to hold the box, he would call the mains nevertheless, and have his valet or a friend to throw for him. I like this courageous spirit in a man. The greatest successes in life have been won by such indomitable perseverance. I was by this time one of the best-known characters in Europe, and the fame of my exploits, my duels, my courage at play, would bring crowds around me in any public society where I appeared. I could show reams of scented paper to prove this eagerness to make my acquaintance was not confined to the gentlemen only, but that I hate boasting, and only talk of myself in so far as it is necessary to relate myself's adventures the most singular of any man's in Europe. Well, Sir Charles Linden's first acquaintance with me originated in the Right Honourable Knight's winning seven hundred pieces of me at piquet, for which he was almost my match. And I lost them with much good humour, and paid them, you may be sure, punctually. Indeed, I will say this for myself, that losing money at play never in the least put me out of good humour with the winner and that whenever I found a superior, I was always ready to acknowledge 
and hail him. Lyndon was very proud of winning from so celebrated a person, and we contracted a kind of intimacy, which, however, did not for a while go beyond pump-room attentions, and conversations over the supper-table at play, but which gradually increased until I was admitted into his more private friendship. He was a very free-spoken man. The gentry of those days were much prouder than at present, and used to say to me in his haughty, easy way, "'Hang it, Mr. Barry, you have no more manners than a barber, and I think my black footman has been better educated than you. But you are a young fellow of originality and pluck, and I like you, sir, because you seem determined to go to the deuce by a way of your own.' I would thank him laughingly for this compliment, and say, that as he was bound to the next world much sooner than I, I would be obliged to him to get comfortable quarters arranged there for me. He used also to be immensely amused with my stories about the splendor of my family and the magnificence of Castle Brady. He would never tire of listening or laughing at those histories. Stick to the trumps, however, my lad, he would say when I told him of my misfortunes in the conjugal line and how near I had been winning the greatest fortune in Germany. "'Do anything but marry, my artless Irish rustic,' he called me by a multiplicity of queer names. "'Cultivate your great talents in the gambling line. But mind this, that a woman will beat you.' That I denied mentioning several instances in which I had conquered the most intractable tempers among the sex. Uh, they will beat you in the long run, my tipperary Alcibiades. As soon as you are married, take my word of it, you are conquered. Look at me. I married my cousin, the noblest and greatest heiress in England. Married her in spite of herself, almost. Here a dark shade passed over Sir Charles Lyndon's countenance. She's a weak woman. You shall see, sir, how weak she is. But she is my mistress. She has embittered my whole life. She is a fool. But she has got the better of one of the best heads in Christendom. She is enormously rich. But somehow I have never been so poor as since I married her. I thought to better myself and she has made me miserable and killed me. And she will do as much for my successor when I am gone. "'Has her ladyship a very large income?' said I. At which Sir Charles burst into a yelling laugh, and made me blush not a little at my gaucherie. For the fact is, seeing him in the condition in which he was, I could not help speculating upon the chance a man of spirit might have with his widow.' "'No, no,' said he, laughing. "'Wahawk, Mr. Barry. "'Don't think if you value your peace of mind "'to stand in my shoes when they're vacant. "'Besides, I don't think my lady Linden "'would quite condescend to marry a—' "'Marry a what, sir?' said I, in a rage. "'Ah, never mind what. "'But the man who gets her will rue it, take my word on't. "'A plague on her.' Had it not been for my father's ambition and mine, he was her uncle and guardian and wouldn't let such a prize out of the family, I might have died pleasantly at least, 
carried my gout down to my grave in quiet lived in my modest tenement in mayfair had every house in england open to me and now now i have six of my own and every one of them is a hell to me beware of greatness mr barry take warning by me ever since i have been married and have been rich i have been the most miserable wretch in the world look at me i am dying a worn-out cripple at the age of fifty marriage has added forty years to my life when i took off lady linden there was no man of my years who looked so young as myself fool that i was i had enough with my pensions perfect freedom the best society in europe and i gave up all these and married and was miserable take a warning by me captain barry and stick to the trumps though my intimacy with the knight was considerable for a long time i never penetrated into any other apartments of his hotel but those which he himself occupied his lady lived entirely apart from him and it is only curious how they came to travel together at all she was a goddaughter of old mary wortley montague and like that famous old woman of the last century made considerable pretensions to be a blue stocking and a bel esprit lady linden wrote poems in english and italian which still may be read by the curious in the pages of the magazines of the day she entertained a correspondence with several of the european savants upon history science and ancient languages and especially theology her pleasure was to dispute controversial points with abbés and bishops and her flatterers said she rivalled madame dacier in learning every adventurer who had a discovery in chemistry a new antique bust or a plan for discovering the philosopher's stone was sure to find a patroness in her she had numberless works dedicated to her and sonnets without end addressed to her by all the poetasters of europe under the name of lindanira or callista her rooms were crowded with hideous china magots and all sorts of objects of virtu no woman piqued herself more upon her principles or allowed love to be made to her more profusely there was a habit of courtship practised by the fine gentlemen of those days which is little understood in our coarse downright times and young and old fellows would pour out floods of compliments in letters and madrigals such as would make a sober lady stare were they addressed to her nowadays so entirely has the gallantry of the last century disappeared out of our manners lady linden moved about with a little court of her own she had half a dozen carriages in her progresses in her own she would travel with her companion some shabby lady of quality her birds and poodles and the favorite savant for the time being in another would be her female secretary and her waiting women who in spite of their care could never make their mistress look much better than a slattern sir charles linden had his own chariot and the domestics of the establishment would follow in other vehicles also must be mentioned the carriage in which rode her lady's chaplain mr runt 
who acted in capacity of governor to her son, the little Viscount Bullingdon, a melancholy deserted little boy, about whom his father was more than indifferent, and whom his mother never saw, except for two minutes at her levee, when she would put to him a few questions of history or Latin grammar, after which he was consigned to his own amusements, or the care of his governor, for the rest of the day. The notion of such a Minerva as this, whom I saw in the public places now and then, surrounded by swarms of needy abbés and schoolmasters, who flattered her, frightened me for some time, and I had not the least desire to make her acquaintance. I had no desire to be one of the beggarly adorers in the great lady's train. Fellows, half friend, half lackey, who made verses and wrote letters and ran errands content to be paid by a seat in her ladyship's box at the comedy or a cover at her dinner-table at noon don't be afraid sir charles linden would say whose great subject of conversation and abuse was his lady my lindenera will have nothing to do with you she likes the tuscan brogue not that of carrie she says you smell too much of the stable to be admitted to ladies' society. And last Sunday fortnight, when she did me the honour to speak to me last, said, I wonder, Sir Charles Linden, a gentleman who has been the king's ambassador can demean himself by gambling and boozing with low Irish blacklegs. <laughs> Don't fly in a fury. I I'm a cripple, and it was Lindenera said it, not I. This piqued me and I was resolved to become acquainted with Lady Linden, if it were but to show her ladyship that the descendant of those berries whose property she unjustly held was not an unworthy companion for any lady, were she ever so high. Besides, my friend the knight was dying. His widow would be the richest prize in the three kingdoms. Why should I not win her, and, with her, the means of making in the world that figure which my genius and inclination desired. I felt I was equal in blood and breeding to any linden in Christendom, and determined to bend this haughty lady. When I determine, I look upon the thing as done. My uncle and I talked the matter over and speedily settled upon a method for making our approaches upon this stately lady of Castle Linden. Mr. Runt, young Bullingdon's governor, was fond of pleasure, of a glass of Rhenish in the garden-houses in the summer evenings, and of a sly throw of the dice when the occasion offered, and I took care to make friends with this person, who, being a college tutor and an Englishman, was ready to go on his knees to any one who resembled a man of fashion. Seeing me with my retinue of servants, my vis-a-vis -vis and chariots, my valets, my hussar and horses, dressed in gold and velvet and sables, saluting the greatest people in Europe as we met on the course or at the spas, Runt was dazzled by my advances, and was mine by a beckoning of the finger. I shall never forget the poor wretch's astonishment when I asked him to dine with two counts off gold plate at the little room in the casino. He was made happy by being allowed to win a few pieces of us, 
became exceedingly tipsy, sang Cambridge songs, and recreated the company by telling us, in his horrid Yorkshire French, stories about the gyps and all the lords that had ever been in his college. I encouraged him to come and see me oftener, and bring with him his little Viscount, for whom, though the boy always detested me, I took care to have a good stock of sweetmeats, toys, and picture-books when he came. I then began to enter into a controversy with Mr. Runt, and confided to him some doubts which I had, and a very, very earnest leaning towards the Church of Rome. I made a certain abbé whom I knew write me letters upon transubstantiation, etc., which the honest tutor was rather puzzled to receive. I knew that they would be communicated to his lady, as they were, for, asking leave to attend the English service which was celebrated in her apartments, and frequented by the best English then at the spa, on the second Sunday she condescended to look at me. On the third she was pleased to reply to my profound bow by a curtsy. The next day I followed up the acquaintance by another obeisance in the public walk. And, to make a long story short, her ladyship and I were in full correspondence on transubstantiation before six weeks were over. My lady came to the aid of her chaplain, and then I began to see the prodigious weight of his arguments, as was to be expected. The progress of this harmless little intrigue need not be detailed. I make no doubt every one of my readers has practiced similar stratagems when a fair lady was in the case. I shall never forget the astonishment of Sir Charles Linden, when, on one summer evening, as he was issuing out to the play-table in his sedan-chair, according to his wont, her ladyship's barouche and four, with her outriders in the tawny livery of the Linden family, came driving into the courtyard of the house which they inhabited, and in that carriage, by her ladyship's side, sat no other than the vulgar Irish adventurer, as she was pleased to call him. I mean, Redmond Barry, Esquire. He made the most courtly of his bows, and grinned and waved his hat in as graceful a manner as the gout permitted. And her ladyship and I replied to the salutation with the utmost politeness and elegance on our part. I could not go to the play-table for some time afterwards, for Lady Linden and I had an argument on transubstantiation which lasted for three hours in which she was as usual victorious, and in which her companion, the Honourable Miss Flint Skinner, fell asleep. But when at last I joined Sir Charles at the casino, he received me with a yell of laughter, as his wont was, and introduced me to all the company as Lady Linden's interesting young convert. This was his way. He laughed and sneered at everything. He laughed when he was in a paroxysm of pain. He laughed when he won money or when he lost it. His laugh was not jovial or agreeable, but rather painful and sardonic. 
gentlemen, said he to Punter, Colonel Loder, Count de Carreau, and several jovial fellows with whom he used to discuss a flask of champagne and a Rhenish trout or two after play. See this amiable youth. He has been troubled by religious scruples, and has flown for refuge to my chaplain, Mr. Runt, who has asked for advice from my wife, Lady Linden, and, between them both, they are confirming my ingenious young friend in his faith. Did you ever hear of such doctors, and such a disciple? Faith, sir, said I, if I want to learn good principles, it's surely better I should apply for them to your lady and your chaplain than to you. He wants to step into my shoes, continued the knight. The man would be happy who did so, responded I, provided there were no chalk-stones included. At which reply Sir Charles was not very well pleased, and went on with increased rancor. He was always free-spoken in his cups and, to say the truth, he was in his cups many more times in a week than his doctors allowed. "'Is it not a pleasure, gentlemen,' said he, "'for me, as I am drawing near the goal, to find my home such a happy one, my wife so fond of me that she is even now thinking of appointing a successor? I don't mean you precisely, Mr. Barry. You are only taking your chance with a score of others whom I could mention.' Isn't it a comfort to see her, like a prudent housewife, getting everything ready for her husband's departure? I hope you are not thinking of leaving us soon, Knight, said I, with perfect sincerity, for I liked him as a most amusing companion. Not so soon, my dear, as you may fancy, perhaps, continued he. Why, man, I have been given over any time these four years and there was always a candidate or two waiting to apply for this situation. Who knows how long I may keep you waiting? And he did keep me waiting, some little time longer than at that period there was any reason to suspect. As I declared myself pretty openly, according to my usual way, and authors are accustomed to describe the persons of the ladies with whom their heroes fall in love, in compliance with this fashion, I perhaps should say a word or two respecting the charms of my Lady Linden. But though I celebrated them in many copies of verses of my own and other persons' writing, and though I filled reams of paper in the passionate style of those days with compliments to every one of her beauties and smiles, in which I compared her to every flower, goddess, or famous heroine ever heard of, Truth compels me to say that there was nothing divine about her at all. She was very well, but no more. Her shape was fine, her hair dark, her eyes good and exceedingly active. She loved singing, but performed it as so great a lady should very much out of tune. She had a smattering of half a dozen modern languages, and, as I have said before, of many more sciences than I even knew the names of. She piqued herself on knowing Greek and Latin, but the truth is that Mr. Runt used to supply her with the quotations that she introduced into her voluminous correspondence. She had as much love of admiration as strong, uneasy vanity, 
and as little heart as any woman I ever knew. Otherwise, when her son, Lord Bullingdon, on account of his differences with me, ran, but that matter shall be told in its proper time. Finally, my Lady Linden was about a year older than myself, though, of course, she would take her Bible oath that she was three years younger. Few men are so honest as I am. So few will own to their real motives, and I don't care a button about confessing mine. What Sir Charles Linden said was perfectly true. I made the acquaintance of Lady Linden with ulterior views. Sir, said I to him when, after the scene described, and the jokes he made upon me we met alone, let those laugh that win. You were very pleasant upon me a few nights since, and on my intentions regarding your lady. Well, if they are what you think they are. If I do wish to step into your shoes, what then? I have no other intentions than you had yourself. I'll be sworn to muster just as much regard for my Lady Linden as you ever showed her. And if I win her and wear her when you are dead and gone, Corbleu Knight, do you think it will be the fear of your ghost will deter me? Linden laughed as usual, but somewhat disconcertedly. Indeed, I had clearly the best of him in the argument, and had just as much right to hunt my fortune as he had. But one day, he said, if you marry such a woman as my Lady Linden, mark my words, you will regret it. You will pine after the liberty you once enjoyed. By George, Captain Barry, he added with a sigh, the thing that I regret most in life perhaps it is because I am old, blasé, and dying, is that I never had a virtuous attachment. Ha, <laughs> ha, a milkmaid's daughter, said I, laughing at the absurdity. Well, why not a milkmaid's daughter? My good fellow, I was in love in youth, as most gentlemen are, with my tutor's daughter, Helena, a bouncing girl, of course older than myself. This made me remember my own little love passages with Nora Brady in the days of my early life. And do you know, sir, I heartily regret I didn't marry her. There's nothing like having a virtuous drudge at home, sir, depend upon that. It gives a zest to one's enjoyments in the world, take my word for it. No man of sense need restrict himself, or deny himself a single amusement for his wife's sake. On the contrary, if he select the animal properly, he will choose such a one as shall be no bar to his pleasure, but a comfort in his hours of annoyance. For instance, I have got the gout. Who tends me? A hired valet, who robs me whenever he has the power. My wife never comes near me. What friend have I? None in the wide world. Men of the world, as you and I are, don't make friends, and we are fools for our pains. Get a friend, sir, and that friend a woman, a good household drudge who loves you. That is the most precious sort of friendship, for the expense of it is all on the woman's side. 
the man needn't contribute anything if he's a rogue she'll vow he's an angel if he's a brute she will like him all the better for his ill-treatment of her they like it sir these women they are born to be our greatest comforts and conveniences our our moral boot-jacks as it were and to men in your way of life believe me such a person would be invaluable i am only speaking for your bodily and mental comfort's sake mind why didn't i marry poor helena flower the curate's daughter i thought these speeches the remarks of a weakly disappointed man although since perhaps i have had reason to find the truth of sir charles linden's statements the fact is in my opinion that we often buy money very much too dear to purchase a few thousands a year at the expense of an odious wife is very bad economy for the young fellow of any talent and spirit and there have been moments of my life when in the midst of my greatest splendor and opulence with a half a dozen lords at my levee with the finest horses in my stables the grandest house over my head with unlimited credit at my bankers and lady linden to boot i have wished myself back a private of bulos or anything so as to get rid of her to return however to the story sir charles with his complication of ills was dying before us by inches and i've no doubt it could not have been very pleasant to him to see a young handsome fellow paying court to his widow before his own face as it were after i once got into the house on the transubstantiation dispute i found a dozen more occasions to improve my intimacy and was scarcely ever out of her ladyship's doors the world talked and blustered but what cared i the men cried fie upon the shameless irish adventurer but i have told my way of silencing such envious people and my sword by this time got such a reputation through europe that few people cared to encounter it if i can once get my hold of a place i keep it many's the house i've been to where i've seen the men avoid me fah the low irishman they would say bah the coarse adventurer out on the insufferable blackleg and puppy and so forth this hatred has been of no inconsiderable service to me in the world for when i fasten on a man nothing can induce me to release my hold and i am left to myself which is all the better as i told lady linden in those days with perfect sincerity callista i used to call her callista in my correspondence callista i swear to thee by the spotlessness of thy own soul by the brilliancy of thy immitigable eyes by everything pure and chaste in heaven and in thy own heart that i will never cease from following thee scorn i can bear and have borne at thy hands indifference i can surmount tis a rock which my energy will climb over a magnet which attracts the dauntless iron of my soul and it was true i wouldn't have left her no though they had kicked me downstairs every day i presented myself at her door that is my way of fascinating women let the man who has to make his fortune in life remember this maxim attacking is his only secret 
dare and the world always yields or if it beat you sometimes dare again and it will succumb in those days my spirit was so great that if i had set my heart upon marrying a princess of the blood i would have had her i told callista my story and altered very very little of the truth my object was to frighten her to show her that what i wanted that i dared that what i dared that i won and there were striking passages enough in my history to convince her of my iron will and indomitable courage never hope to escape me madam i would say offer to marry another man and he dies upon this sword which never yet met its master fly from me and i will follow you though it were to the gates of hades i promise you this was very different language to that which she had been in the habit of hearing from her jemmy jessamy adorers you should have seen how i scared the fellows from her when i said in this energetic way that i would follow lady linden across the sticks if necessary of course i meant that i would do so provided nothing more suitable presented itself in the interim if linden would not die what was the use of my pursuing the countess and somehow towards the end of the spa season very much to my mortification i do confess the knight made another rally it seemed as if nothing would kill him i am sorry for you captain barry he would say laughing as usual i am grieved to keep you or any gentleman waiting had you not better arrange with my doctor or get the cook to flavor my omelet with arsenic what are the odds gentlemen he would add that i don't live to see captain barry hanged yet in fact the doctors tinkered him up for a year it's my usual luck i could not help saying to my uncle who was my confidential and most excellent adviser in all matters of the heart i've been wasting the treasures of my affection upon that flirt of a countess and here's her husband restored to health and likely to live i don't know how many years and as if to add to my mortification there came just at this period to spa an english tallow-chandler's heiress with a plum to her fortune and madame cornu the widow of a norman cattle-dealer and farmer-general with a dropsy and two hundred livres a year what's the use of my following the lindens to england said i if the knight won't die don't follow them my dear simple child replied my uncle stop here and pay court to the new arrivals yes and lose callista forever and the greatest estate in all england pooh pooh youths like you easily fire and easily despond keep up a correspondence with lady linden you know there's nothing she likes so much there's the irish abbe who will write you the most charming letters for a crown apiece let her go write to her and meanwhile look out for anything else which may turn up who knows you might marry the norman widow bury her take her money and be ready for the countess against the knight's death and so with vows of the most profound respectful attachment and having given twenty louis to lady linden's waiting-woman for a lock of her hair 
of which fact, of course, the woman informed her mistress, I took leave of the countess, when it became necessary for her to return to her estates in England, swearing I would follow her as soon as an affair of honour I had on my hands could be safely brought to an end. I shall pass over the events of the year that ensued before I again saw her. She wrote to me according to promise, with much regularity at first, with somewhat less frequency afterwards. My affairs, meanwhile, at the play-table, went on not unprosperously, and I was just on the point of marrying the widow Cornu. We were at Brussels by this time, and the poor soul was madly in love with me, when the London Gazette was put into my hands, and I read the following announcement. Died at Castle Linden, in the Kingdom of Ireland, the Right Honourable Sir Charles Linden, Knight of the Bath, Member of Parliament for Linden in Devonshire, and many years His Majesty's representative at various European courts. He hath left behind him a name which is endeared to all his friends for his manifest virtues and talents, a reputation justly acquired in the service of His Majesty, and an inconsolable widow to deplore his loss. Her ladyship, the bereaved Countess of Linden, was at the bath when the horrid intelligence reached her of her husband's demise, and hastened to Ireland immediately in order to pay her last sad duties to his beloved remains. That very night I ordered my chariot and posted to Ostend, where I freighted a vessel to Dover, and, travelling rapidly into the west, reached Bristol, from which port I embarked for Waterford, and found myself, after an absence of eleven years, in my native country. End of chapter 13